Uh, welcome to Adult Sunday School. And I don't know, have we been doing this thing where we're trying to move to this side, or have we been doing that? Okay, so maybe if you'd like, you know, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a Nazi about it, but uh, if you would just move over, uh, I could more directly pantomime at you and uh, throw imaginary projectiles at you as we talk. Okay, well, welcome to Adult Sunday School. Um, we're going to start out with a, a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we pray that your purposes would be done in our lives, in this world. We pray, Lord, indeed, that your kingdom would come. We pray, Lord, uh, for this morning that you would um, reveal your word to us, that we would be able to look at your word together and marvel at what you have for us in it. Um, Lord, I just pray um, that what we talk about this morning um, will be something that will humble us, something that will excite us, something that will um, make us want to shout for joy. And um, Lord, I pray that uh, while we go through it, Lord, we will, um, with all diligence, seek to understand what you have for us in your word, and that, um, Lord, that we would be conformed, Lord, through this, uh, through this word. Um, to the image of your son um, in, in ways of sanctification this morning because of your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, I'm excited to be here today. Um, I had a great time actually studying this. Of course, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer um, in, that, in the book, Alone with God, with John MacArthur. I better get a Bible here. Um, sorry, I kind of, um, my, my daughter was up at four to six a.m. this morning, so I'm a little discombobulated. Um, my head isn't all where it should be. Okay, so I'm excited to be here. I'd like to ask you one question before we get started. Um, and the question is, if I were to ask you to point to me, uh, to point to uh, what the unifying theme of Scripture is that you think, um, what would you say it was? What, you, what would you say is the unifying theme in Scripture? And just, uh, just shout stuff out, you know? Salvation. salvation? Okay, so we hear salvation. Christ. Christ, okay. So there's salvation, there's Christ. Anything else? What are, what's the unifying theme of Scripture? God's glory. Okay. God's character. Great. Anything else? Looking at you, Dave, what's the, what's the unifying theme of Scripture? Uh, I stole my you stole your answer. <laughs> okay, so... Here's, here's another piece of trivia for you before I, before I kind of try to answer that question is, does anybody know what the most commonly used phrase in the New Testament is? What's the most commonly used phrase in the New Testament? What do you think it is? Well, turn... Is what? Immediately, yeah, right. Every, every, uh, every, every chapter is immediately, immediately, right. Now, the, the, commonly, the most commonly used phrase in Scripture turns out to be or sorry, not in Scripture, in the New Testament, it turns out to be the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God. Um, this is according to MacArthur, not according to me. So. Um, but, you know, according to biblical theologians, um, biblical theologians, which is really the, the study of, of really the entire Bible, the story of the Bible, um, come into sort of two different camps, right? There's two different camps that they fall into when you ask them the question, 
what is a unifying theme of scripture? And the first camp would be, would say, as Romano said, salvation. They would say, salvation, God saving uh, through the power of the gospel, that is the unifying theme of all of scripture. And then the other camp would say, kingdom. God's kingdom, in fact, is the unifying theme of scripture. It would be the framework by which all of the other themes that we talked about, Christ, salvation, um, whatever we, I can't remember what the other things that you threw out, but all of those were good. Um, character, right? They all fit into the framework of a kingdom. So, you know, of course, we can't be dogmatic about which one is the real theme of scripture because, of course, scripture um, has many themes. Um, but, you know, as I thought about it this week and um, as I listened to, to various people um, and, and, and study various writings, I came down to the fact where I think really kingdom does seem like it's the unifying framework of all scripture. And, and why do I say that? Well, it's the framework by which salvation makes sense, right? So what are you saved from? You're not saved just so that you are, uh, just so for the purpose of being saved. That's not the end. The means, that's the means of, of, of getting you into a kingdom, right? So salvation is really how you get into a kingdom. And the end is serving Christ, serving with Christ for, forever and ever within the kingdom. That's really the ultimate end of everything, right? Serving Christ in the eternal state, um, loving Christ, honoring Christ, worshiping Christ in a kingdom. So if you would take the, the story of the, of the Bible, the unifying theme as kingdom, this, would, this is what you would say the story of the Bible is. It would be that in the beginning, right, once upon a time, the eternal triumvirate, um, who, you know, they were, it was already a king, right? They were already a king. They created a kingdom. They created a kingdom with two citizens. Two citizens were named Adam and Eve, right? And then an enemy came in and usurped the king. They usurped the right to rule, the rightful allegiance, I'm sorry, of the citizens to the king. So Satan came in and usurped the rightful allegiance of the, uh, the citizens. Uh, God then intervened with curses, right? He cursed the earth, uh, cursed um, the serpent, cursed, or cursed man. And ever since then, it's been a story of redemption. It's been a story of God redeeming the people, God redeeming his citizens to be restored, to be qualified kingdom citizens. And so, not, and so one day, so the end of the story is one day, the citizens will be restored into a physical kingdom, right? A physical kingdom. So, you know, we, Hallmark would have this idea of heaven as sort of the spiritual thing where we kind of float in the clouds. Well, that's not the, that's not the eternal state. The eternal state is actually a new heavens and a new earth, a physical, you know, um, knock on wood kingdom, right? So, you know, I never, I guess I share that with you because I never really considered that, that particular uh, paradigm of thinking until I started studying this passage and it really opened my eyes. So, you know, I think there's three distinct units in the Word of God. You can kind of separate the Word of God into three units. Um, you'll think this is kind of cheap, but, but here it is. The first unit is the kingdom of God before sin. 
So this is from Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 3, right? So the kingdom of God before sin. And then the second uh, unit is the kingdom of God during sin. So this would be from Genesis you know, 3 to Revelation 20, right? And then it's the kingdom of God after sin. So the eternal state where, where it's um, Genesis, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Revelation 20, verse, verse 11 to, to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22. So that's sort of three distinct units you can look at of, of the Word of God. So, so I, think, I think that, you know, at least for this morning, let's try to think of, of, the, of the paradigm or the, the overarching story of the Bible as, as kingdom. And really, it's a beautiful thing, right? Because, you know, salvation, if, as I said before, is really getting people into a kingdom, getting yourself, getting people into a kingdom. Um, well, you know, the first the millennial kingdom, then the eternal kingdom. And in this kingdom, what's, interest, what's interesting and, and unique about this kingdom is that in this kingdom, every citizen will call Christ not only king, right, as if you might call an earthly king today that you don't have a relationship with, but you would also call this king your savior, your personal, intimate savior. So isn't that amazing? You're, you're, in this kingdom, every citizen has absolute allegiance and absolute love for their king because he's also their intimate personal savior. So that kingdom is where we'll serve Christ uh, forever and ever. So that's why what we're looking at this morning I think is so important. And just turn over to Matthew 6 verses uh, 9 to 10. Uh, of course, this is of course the Lord's Prayer that we've been looking at for uh, a few weeks now. Trying to see the pattern of prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray. So verse 9 to 10, let me just read that for you. Uh, Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it goes on, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and and those things are, are for later weeks. So today, of course, we're focusing on the phrase, thy kingdom come. Right, so last week, um, we talked about hallowed be thy name. I think that was Seth. And, and this week, it's um, thy kingdom come. So I think my hope this morning is that, you know, after, you know, after this Sunday school, and we think about this together, um, you'll, you'll leave here with a slightly different or, or deeper perspective of what thy kingdom come means. And I, I sure did after my study this week. Um, so all, our goal this morning, or, or my goal this morning, is really to answer the question, you know, why in the world should we pray this? Why should we pray, thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come? Um, and what do we mean when we actually pray that? So I have a simple outline today on your sheet for you. Uh, do you guys have handouts? Everybody have handouts? Okay, good. Thank you, Gabe, for making those handouts. Um, so I have a, a simple outline of five questions we're going to answer. Question one is, what is the kingdom? So what is the kingdom that we're talking about? What kind of kingdom are we longing for? What will it be like in this kingdom? So, you know, we, sh- we ought to know something about the kingdom to, be, to know how to long for it um, or why we should long for it. Uh, why should we pray for this kingdom to come? I mean, what, why should we do that uh, besides the fact that it's commanded? Are there other reasons why we should do that? And, and finally, we'll end on sort of a practical note, which is, you know, if this is really the prayer in our hearts, then how does this kingdom longing affect our lives? 
So if, if, if we have this kingdom longing in our hearts and it characterizes um, our thinking and our prayers, then, then how should that actually affect our lives? So those are what we're going to pray. That's what we're going to, to look at today in the, in the prayer. So first, what is the kingdom? Um, you'll notice from the text, obviously, that whose kingdom is it? Whose kingdom is it? Okay, so specifically, it's our Father's kingdom, right? Your kingdom come. Um, our Father's kingdom. So it is God's kingdom. That's right. Well, it turns out that the word kingdom is a pervasive theme in Scripture, right? It's, it's complex and it's pervasive. And I thought since it was so critical, the word kingdom, for us to understand the passage, we would just look uh, for a few minutes at some of the other places in Matthew where the word kingdom is used. And just to get you a flavor, really quickly, we're not going to belabor this. But uh, just turn over to, to Matthew 6, verse 33. Um, here the word kingdom is used, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, right? So, so this is, well, a kingdom is something that we can seek even now, right? If you turn over to uh, chapter 7, verse 21, it says, this is a, the famous uh, verse that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many on that day, or sorry, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? So this seems like this is a kingdom that's going to happen on that day. This is a future kingdom, right? Um, not everybody who says to me, Lord, will, will enter that future kingdom. If you look in uh, chapter 8, verse 12, uh, just flip over a few more verses, um, it says, But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out in the outer darkness, and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, of course, out of context, this is a very weird verse, but this is talking about, really, kingdom being used as Israel. This is the physical nation of Israel um, that, that this is used here. If you flip over to verse... Uh, 11 of chapter 11, so 11, 11. Uh, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, from, sorry, keep going. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. So, this is something that even today, people are taking by force. Even today, something is, is suffering violence. In fact, it's been suffering violence and being taken by force all throughout history, right? So this is something that um, seems like it's, a, it's an eternal type of thing. Um, and then, of course, if you look at Matthew 12, verse 26. Um, uh, let's see, 12, 26. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? So, of course, now Satan also has a kingdom, right? So now there's a kingdom of Satan, and then opposed to that, there's a kingdom that's not of Satan, right? And uh, Matthew 16, 28, this will be the last one in Matthew, uh, 16, 28. There's a few verses here. I'm just picking a few. But 16, 28 is, um, there's more verses, I said. So, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is, of course, talking about the uh, transfiguration, which is really in the next verse. 
So here, the kingdom, the word kingdom is kind of used as something that's coming with Christ. This is something that's sort of attached to Christ. You can't separate the kingdom from the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's something that comes with Christ in his transfiguration even. Oh, last one. Matthew uh, 26, 29. Matthew 26, 29. Um, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this verse clearly is talking about a future kingdom, right? I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine. This is, what we, this is the same verse we read every time we take communion. I'm not going to drink this until physically I'm in my Father's kingdom and we're going to drink it together, right? So these are sort of some of the, the senses that uh, the word kingdom is used. Uh, let, me look at, let me just look at one more thing, which I think is interesting since we, I seem to be actually on time today. So if you look on, uh, turn to the book of Acts. I thought this was just kind of a, an interesting trivia thing. Um, if you look in Acts chapter 1, it turns out the book of Acts is sandwiched by the, the mention of the kingdom. But it's sandwiched in a very interesting way. If you look at uh, Acts 1 verse 6, it says, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that, that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So there's the disciples asking, is it at this time you're going to restore the, the kingdom that, that fulfills all of your covenant promises to Israel? This is talking about a national Israel kingdom, right? At least this is exactly what the, the disciples mean. And then if you turn to the end of Acts, in Acts verse 28, uh, sorry, chapter 28, uh, verse 28. So this is the very end of the book of Acts. And this is just kind of interesting. Um, look at what it says. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Um, and when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Um, and, they, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So in this context, the kingdom of God is talking about who? Israel or Gentiles? talks about Gentiles, right? It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, that salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. You will also listen. This is Paul, of course, preaching to the, you know, being sent out to, to, to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles. So here, it's the kingdom of Gentiles. So why did I drag you through all this? I just wanted to give you a sense of the complexity of the word kingdom and how it's used. The expansiveness of the word kingdom and what we're dealing with, even with these three little words, thy kingdom come. So let me just give you a few of the tensions. Um, this is from Richard Mayhew. Here's some tensions with the word kingdom. In some places of scripture, it talks about an eternal kingdom. It seems to be talking about a kingdom that's eternal. Whereas in other places, it talks about a temporal kingdom. Even among the temporal kingdoms, there are kingdoms that, are, that seem to be talking about a past kingdom, seem to be talking about a present kingdom, and seem to be talking about a future kingdom. A kingdom that is already here versus a kingdom that is not yet here. Both of those things are, are, the kingdom is used in both of those senses. A spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that rules over our minds and our hearts, as well as a physical kingdom, right? A few physical coming kingdom. Another tension is a universal kingdom where God rules over everybody, sinner or not, you know, rede redeemed or not, and the redemptive kingdom where 
It's the kingdom of the saints, the kingdom of the saved. Uh, a kingdom that is universal in scope, the whole world, versus a kingdom that is limited, um, the local rule of earth on nations, in the nations. Uh, a direct rule of God in the kingdom versus the rule of God through a king or a mediator. Um, everlasting kingdom versus kings, kingdoms that will have an end. Uh, a real physical kingdom versus the church. Um, and of course, the kingdom that's ruled by Satan, right, versus the kingdom that is um, ruled by his beloved son, Christ. So these are sort of the tensions in which the word kingdom is used. And so the kingdom, I think, in, in the Bible is really a multifaceted thing. Um, it's not just one thing. It's not just the nation. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not just land. But it's also not just a disembodied church. Um, it's spiritual. It's physical. It's coming. It's now, right? And it actually, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense for the kingdom to be a multifaceted thing because guess what? We have a multifaceted king that rules over the kingdom, don't we? Jesus Christ is a multifaceted king. And, and let me just tell you seven ways in which Jesus is a king. First of all, he's the king of the Jews, right? So that's a racial king. He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness, right? That's a spiritual king. He's a king of the ages. That's an eternal king. He's a king of heaven. That's a celestial king. He's a king of glory. That's a magnificent king. And then he's also the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? That's a divine king, a king that's also God. So I just want to give you a sense of, of what's wrapped up. But then we have to stop and ask the question, well, in our passage where we read our kingdom come, how is the kingdom really used? What is the sense in that passage? Um, so that's the second question we're asking. What kind of kingdom are we longing to come? And my claim this morning to you is that in this passage, the word kingdom is used primarily in looking forward to a future kingdom. Okay, so this is talking about a future coming kingdom on earth. So why do I say that? Well, I have two reasons why I say that from the text. If you look back in Matthew 6, verse 10, um, first of all, it says, your kingdom what? Come, right? So there's the word come. Now, for something to come, it only makes sense to presuppose that this thing isn't here yet. Otherwise, it makes little sense to ask for it to come. Um, for, uh, according to John MacArthur, the Greek word come here translates to a aortist active imperative form of the verb that indicates a sudden and instantaneous coming. So this is, a, this is not like a gradual coming that comes sort of you know, one by one, heart, heart by heart, but this is a sudden and instantaneous coming. And, and literally, the sense in the Greek, according to MacArthur, is your kingdom let it come. Your kingdom, let it come. So that's the first reason, I think, that, that this is really talking about an, a future kingdom, is the word come, um, presupposing that something is going to come that isn't here yet. The second reason I think it's a future kingdom is because if you look down um, at the end of the verse, it says, on earth as it is what? In heaven, right? So now, I have to admit that, you know, in the be you know, before I started looking at this, I've always thought that when it says on earth as it is in heaven, that refers to 
the, the antecedent, the, fir the verse right next, right before it, which is thy will be done, right? So I thought it read, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you just kind of go on with the rest of the prayer. But it turns out that it's very likely that this, um, this prayer, the, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, is an example of Hebrew parallelism. So what do I mean by that? Well, it turns out that the, um, it says, the, uh, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What you'll notice is that between those phrases, there's no conjunction, there's no word, and, right? So if you look later, um, give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, right? So that's not the structure of this beginning, so, of, the, of this uh, first three phases. So it's, these first three phases are very likely of Hebrew parallelism, where these three verses um, are meant to be taken together. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, are all sort of talking about kind of the same thing in a sense. And then the next phrase, which is on earth as it is in heaven, refers to actually all three of those things. So you could read this as, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So to say thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is really a de desire here that's being expressed is a future reality, right? It's, it's a reality where we don't see the kingdom on earth that is, is in heaven today, and we're longing for a future reality where we see the, um, the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So, so that's what we're praying for. So does that surprise you? Because that, that kind of surprised me, to be honest. And, um, and you ask, you know, what, well, what are some of the other interpretations of this verse that other people, other people give? And I'll just give you a, a sense because, um, you know, I think it's important to, to understand what other people think about this. And there might be other opinions, but here are sort of the major ones that I came across. So, so one person would say, some people would say, this is an evangelistic thing. So when we pray that, you know, for the kingdom to come, one, uh, the kingdom to come, we're really praying that the kingdom will come into our hearts, one heart at a time. Right? So it's really an evangelistic, uh, evangelistic uh, prayer. But I think that's unlikely, first of all, because of the sense of the word come, which is a sudden, instantaneous coming, as opposed to gradual, one heart at a time, building up. And also, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about the kingdom as something that comes into us, does it? That doesn't make much sense. We, as citizens of the kingdom, go into the kingdom right? Because of the gospel. A second sort of interpretation, so, so I think the, the evangelistic interpretation, is what I call it, is, is unlikely. The second interpretation um, is probably what I thought of this, this meant before, I, uh, before this week, is, is a spiritual interpretation. So this is a spiritual reality. The kingdom here then, in this interpretation, would be a spiritual kingdom. And, and what we would be saying is, we pray that God's church will be increased, right? Your kingdom will come gradually, and, and God's church will be built up. Um, you know, but I found this to be unlikely, too, because of the phrase, first of all, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, well, really, we don't see that today. Um, you know, that isn't the way that God rules in heaven, which is pervasive, uh, total dominion. And, of course, we already looked at it in sort of in the verses we looked at in Matthew, that kingdom really does have a physical later future sense to it. 
So, so I think the spiritual sort of interpretation is also uh, kind of unlikely. So I think the best interpretation here is to say that, you know, thy kingdom here, come here. The kingdom is talking about a literal future earthly kingdom that we are praying to come. We are longing for this kingdom to come. And we're not only we're longing for the kingdom to come, but we're longing for the king, right, Jesus Christ, to come back and rule it. And, you know, my, sort of my claim to you is that even though we're longing for a future kingdom, that longing has vast implications on our life today. But, but we'll look at that in a little bit. Okay, so obviously, so this, here comes to the third question that, um, on your outline. Obviously, we need to know a few more details about this kingdom um, if we are to long for it, right? So, so let me just tell you a few more details. And this is the question, what will it be like in the kingdom? So first of all, what do I mean by Christ's physical kingdom? And yes, unfortunately, I'm going to have to mention the dirty word eschatology, right? Because um, this is, um, this is uh, really talking about the end times, about eschatology. And, you know, I know that when I said the word eschatology, some, some hairs on some of your necks probably stood up and uh, settled down. I'm not going to turn this into a class about eschatology. But really, I, I do think that I, want, I, want, I do want to say, you know, before we, we, we talk about this, that I, I understand that this can be a controversial issue. And in fact, this is not only a controversial issue, it's a complex issue that, that, that takes a lot of study that's pervasive throughout Scripture. Um, so, so I think that um, we as a, as a church need to approach this topic with humility. Right? We do need to approach it with humility. We do need to approach it um, with uh, the right view of, of, um, of our really that this is a, this is a hard issue and, and to give grace to, to people who don't hold our views. Um, so, so I think that that's what God would want us to do in a spirit of unity to really actually do talk about and, and, to, and to understand eschatology together. But by the way, I just want to say this is a good example of how eschatology does actually touch places in scripture where we wouldn't expect. Oh, that was weird. Um, so, so uh, you know, we wouldn't expect to see eschatology in the Lord's Prayer, but, but here we are. Um, so, so what do I mean by a future kingdom then? Well, I personally believe, and, and it's the position of the church, we believe in a view of eschatology called premillennialism, which means that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, comes physically to earth in two phases, right? It comes first in a literal thousand years where Jesus Christ reigns physically on the earth in Israel, and then after that, it comes in an eternal state, right? So this is the, the eternal state that comes after the millennial kingdom. Um, so so that's, what, that's, what, that's what I believe. And I believe that within, during the 1,000-year reign of Christ, all of the covenant promises of Israel that were never fulfilled, literally, were, are now, is now being fulfilled. Um, all the promises, all the land promises, um, all of those things um, that Israel will be... Um, will be the powerful nation and all that, is being fulfilled during that thousand-year period. And I think that glorifies God. I think that actually um, is, is the, uh, is, is really speaks to the faithfulness of God to be keeping those promises that he made to those people when those people 
interpreted those promises literally, he's going to fulfill those promises literally. So let me, um, and by the way, I think, I think this is, the, the millennium is really the aspect of the kingdom that the disciples mean when they ask, when is the kingdom going to be set up in Israel? What, when are you going to bring the kingdom to Israel? I think they're talking about the millennial kingdom where the promises will all be fulfilled, right? So let me give you a, just paint you a, a, a quick brief picture of what I think it'll look like in the millennial kingdom. Um, and then the eternal state. So within the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ is shown to be doing the impossible, right? He's going to be doing the impossible. He's going to be ruling in a kingdom of humans, okay? Kingdom of, of actual human beings. Of course, we will, you know, the saints will be there in glorified bodies, but political, moral, judicial, and religious problems will totally be solved by Jesus Christ. No one could do that, certainly not King David, certainly not Barack Obama, right? Except for Jesus Christ. And so he'll show that he is, in fact, a better king, a more worthy king than all the kings that have come before him. Not only that, but disease is eradicated. Uh, war is eradicated until the, the, um, until the end. And, you know, imagine there will be perfect justice, the end of all social problems. You know, we'll never see again somebody who, who gets away with murder, right? Or, or, or gets away with something um, and doesn't pay the full penalty. And there will be peace, right? Deep and, ever, uh, deep and, pe and lasting peace until, until the war at the end. There will be happiness like, like we've never experienced before. There will be a joy that we've never known before. Um, you know, even wild animals won't be a threat as, as children lie down with and play with cobras. And of course, the norm will be healthy and long lives, right? So this is a totally different type of kingdom than we see here on earth. This is a superior kingdom. Greatest of all, the greatest thing about this kingdom is that Christ will be present on earth in a way that we can mingle with Christ, as we would mingle with people at a party. And we will be mingling not only with Christ, but with all of the um, great men of old, all the great saints um, throughout history. Well, this is still, as great as this kingdom is, it'll still be an imperfect kingdom because there will still be death. There will, there will still be sin, and in the end, there will be a final rebellion. But then when Christ puts down that rebellion, what will, what will happen, what will follow, is what we call the eternal state, which is sin then is totally eradicated. Death is totally eradicated. You know, even the celestial bodies like the sun and the moon won't be needed because Christ will be our only source of illumination that we need. And, and after the, 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 this, that, this millennial kingdom, you know, God will come and or Christ will come and, and totally destroy the earth. I mean, the whole universe will just be totally consumed in fire, right? So it's like a, a disposable tissue that you just kind of do this and, and throw it out of the way. Um, and this then will, then God will create a, a new heavens and a new earth described in Revelation 20, verse 11 to 22, uh, to, to Revelation 22. 
This will be, by the way, a physical world still. So we will still be in a physical world, a physical kingdom. And, and by the way, this is where, you know, at least in my understanding, all Christians agree. So if, whether you're amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, we all agree that the new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation 20, verse 11 to, to Revelation 22, that is a literal physical kingdom. Okay? So, you know, a heavenly city will descend and all the, you know, all the saints will live with Christ forever. And I think this is most beautifully described by actually an amillennialist, uh, Hokuma, Anthony Hokuma, which said that, you know, if you imagine in this kingdom, in this eternal state, heaven and earth will no longer be separated. There will be no separation between heaven and earth because they will be one. God will make his dwelling place on the earth. And of course, where God is, heaven is also. So again, this is a physical kingdom. Um, and of course, we'll be in glorified bodies. And, you know, I, I have to say that my own thinking is kind of strange sometimes. Sometimes, I think we're, we're tempted to think of the glorified state as, oh, well, that's just a little bit boring, right? I mean, how can life be interesting without conflict? How can life be interesting if, you know, the Hallmark card and we just kind of play our harps all day, right? Um, is that really, no thrills, no difficulty? Is that, is that really an interesting place to live? Well, that's obviously the wrong way of thinking about it. The, the glorified state, um, the, the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth will be better than anything that we've ever experienced. Now, just think about it. In this kingdom, we will have perfect relationships with Jesus Christ. We will all have a perfect relationship. You know, this week, I sinned, okay? That will not happen in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. Our desires, all our desires, our, our, our most, our deepest longings will be satisfied in Jesus. We will serve Christ forever in jobs that are ultimately fulfilling. Um, you know, perhaps some of you have jobs that you kind of go on Monday mornings and you're like, oh, I have to go to work again. Uh, don't, don't feel that, by the way. You shouldn't say that. But maybe that's kind of how we, how we think about our, our jobs. Um, well, in this new, new reality, we will all have jobs that are totally fulfilling. Just think of your best moment in this earth. Think of your best physical moment, your best spiritual moment, and just realize that that feeling, that love, that fulfillment, pales, actually is not even comparable to the worst moment you'll have in the kingdom. So, so that's what we're looking forward to. There will be unceasing applause in this kingdom for Jesus Christ. Unceasing applause. So should we look forward to such a kingdom? I, I think we should look forward to such a kingdom. Alright, so next point is, the next question I'd like to, to study with you is, why should we pray for the kingdom to come, beyond, of course, that there's, we're commanded in this passage of Scripture in, in Matthew to pray for it to come. Well, let me ask you a question. Does a true Christian always pray or always crave, sorry, for, Christ, for God's kingdom to come? Does a, does, a, does a true, or should a true Christian then, always crave for God's kingdom to come? Yes or no? Yes. Why? Because the craving... This longing is the mark of a true Christian. A Christian is somebody who has died to himself, who loves Jesus Christ, who's been saved by the gospel of grace and love, right? Who truly understands the gospel, truly understands what he's been saved from, 
And now he's willing, or actually now he's a willing slave to the master. He's been bought with a price. And if we're willing slaves of the master, let me ask you another question. Um, is it the slave's job to be concerned with his own welfare? Or is it the slave's job to be concerned with his master's welfare? His master's. We should be concerned for our master's welfare. That is the mark of a true Christian. Um, now notice that this longing, in one sense, is a totally God-centered thing. This is not a man-centered thing. This is about God's kingdom, God's purposes. And if you actually note the structure of the Lord's Prayer, um, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, the first three uh, the first half of the Lord's Prayer is talking about God's purposes. This is praying, this is nothing really to do with, with what we want on, on the earth happening. This is all about God, God word praying. And then the, the last few verses of the Lord's Prayer, which is, give us, our day, our daily, give us this day our daily bread, lead us not into temptation, right? Forgive us our, 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 our sins. Those things are more us-centered. So it's God first and then us. God first and then us. This is God word praying. This is pray, this, this, to pray thy kingdom come is to pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled, right? And it, I think it forces us, I think one thing that happens is that praying this forces us to be confronted with the question of, you know, Greg, you know, when I pray this, if you're praying this, who is sovereign over your life? Who is sovereign over your life? Is it me? Is it my purposes? Um, is my comfort the primary thing? Or is what's really important to me the kingdom? Is it, if it, you know, when I'm praying this, when I'm praying through the Lord's Prayer and I get to thy kingdom come, I'm forced to ask myself, is the, is the way I'm living my life exemplifying that my concern is for God's kingdom versus my concern for my own goals? Right? Is my life, is your prayer um, kingdom-centered or are they self-centered? You see, when we pray this, we relinquish our rule over our own life. And we acknowledge that it's Christ's purposes, it's what Christ wants that is supreme. And, you know, John, Mac John MacArthur put it, well, put it well. And I think when we pray, we ought to be mindful of this. He says, when we, before we go bursting into his presence with all our petitions, we need to stop long enough to consider his causes and his kingdom. And we must affirm our yearning that he be glorified in his purposes. Right? So think about this. Do you do this when you pray? Do you burst into God's purposes and say, Heavenly Father, do this for me, and do this for me, and then do this for me. Thank you. Amen. Right? But that's not the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. It's Father, your kingdom come. Your purposes be done. Your will be done. And then, I also have these requests. Right? And so, really, it's a Godward prayer. So, so in one sense, praying thy kingdom come, I think, is a selfless prayer. A selfless prayer. As Christians, our, our primary interest has been translated out of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? Philippians 3.20. We are sojourners in this, we're in pilgrims in this world, 1 Peter uh, 117, and we're waiting to enter a city whose builder and maker is God, right? Hebrews 11, verse 10. So it's a selfless prayer. But in another real sense, this is also a selfish prayer. This is also a selfish prayer. 
Because there's an aspect, of course, that when God is glorified, that is for our good. And when God is glorified, we, in fact, as his people, are glorified too. The Bible, of course, is dripping with the longing of a kingdom. The creation groans itself. And if you just read, I'll just read to you Romans 8, verses 16 to 23, so you can get what I mean. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies at the end. So, it's a selfish prayer. This is praying for God's kingdom to come is praying for the redemption of ourselves, the glorification even of ourselves, as it says in this passage. So we are, pray, we are to pray for the kingdom to come. Craving the kingdom is a mark of a true Christian. And our hope and our longing is for the kingdom to come. So that's what consumes us and what we should pray for. So what I'd like to, to end with is, on a practical note, thinking with you about how this kingdom longing should affect us today. And let me just say that I believe that the part of the purpose of praying this is to create in ourselves a kingdom perspective. In fact, this is a, a happy side effect. It's, it's sort of a paradox, really. You know, Jesus is a genius, obviously, but it's a paradox because praying this, that, our, that your kingdom will come, will cultivate within us a kingdom perspective. But really, it's only with a kingdom perspective that we can rightly pray for God's kingdom to come. You get it? So, so it's, kind of a, it's kind of a paradox um, that the kingdom perspective is, is necessary to pray this, but yet that's what results in us when we pray it. So how does a kingdom perspective flush out in our lives? How should a kingdom perspective affect our lives? And in fact, my assertion right now to you is that I believe that having a proper kingdom perspective will make us holier, will make us more joyful, and make us more effective for Christ today as we long for the kingdom in the future. And I have sort of three ways that a kingdom longing will cause us to live differently today. So first is, we'll be concerned about advancing the kingdom. We'll be concerned about advancing the kingdom. How do you get into the kingdom? How do you get into the kingdom? We're born again by hearing with faith, right? The gospel. So if we are to be concerned about the kingdom, if we are longing for the kingdom, then we are longing for the kingdom citizens to come in, right? And so that means we should have an evangelistic 
spirit. Um, what can I do in this life, what can I do right now to advance the kingdom, to, to usher in the citizens of the kingdom, right? Um, how can we encourage unbelievers in any way we can to, open, to enter in through the open door into the kingdom while there's still an opportunity? So being concerned about advancing the kingdom, the first way is that it, it makes us more evangelistic. It makes us concerned about, about people, about the unbelieved, unbelieving. You know, a second way that uh, kingdom longing will cause us to live differently is living, we will live like the kingdom is real. So we live by the, like, like the kingdom is real. This is sanctification. We live as if the future reality of the kingdom is so real that it's untouchable. It is, it is as real as this podium before me, right? So many of you um, have read the book Future Grace by John Piper. And, you know, I have to say that book was a transformative book, even my, in my own life, uh, when I read that as an early Christian. The basic premise of Future Grace is that by looking at grace that God has promised to give us in the future, that is the proper motivation for us to be living holy lives today. So, you know, by looking at what God has promised in the future and looking at what God has done in the past to fulfill those promises gives us confidence that God will do that in the future. That is really the proper motivation for living holy lives today. It promotes holiness because we know that, that um, we will be rewarded in the future kingdom for the, the sufferings of this world now that, that aren't even to be compared to it, right? Um, so that's the first thing. It's, it's a proper motivation for holiness, this kingdom perspective. It also prevents us, I think, from being consumed by the wrong things, by being consumed by the things of the world. You know, of course, we read in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, right? We are to prioritize the kingdom over these things of the world that don't matter. Money, right? Um, power, status, being liked before men. Um, things that so easily ensnare us, right? Um, you know, the next job promotion, um, you know, whatever, physical pleasures, desires of the flesh. Those things are things that, if you have a kingdom perspective, they fade. They fade because you think, money, that's just going to burn up. You know? you know, pleasure, there'll be plenty enough of that in the kingdom. Um, you know, it prevents us from being too consumed by the wrong things. That's what a kingdom perspective does. And so our primary concern becomes the honor and glory of God. And then the last point that I'll end with um, of how a kingdom perspective flushes out is it causes us to rejoice in the reality of a kingdom. It causes rejoicing. This is our hope, right? This is our joy. This is our joy in the future that there will be a kingdom with a king, Jesus Christ, and we'll be in the kingdom and we'll know Jesus Christ. So this gives us hope when things are um, when things don't look good in our lives. By looking at the reality of a kingdom, this gives us joy. 
it also, I think, gives our lives meaning. It gives our lives meaning because, you know, before I became a Christian, you know, I was always trying to find meaning in things that were not God. I was trying to find meaning in video games. I was trying to find meaning in um, relationships with people, right? I was trying, trying to find meaning in, in, places, in places where these things are just going to burn up. But here we have an eternal kingdom of God. This will be there forever. It's fixed as a fixed point in time, right? And so this gives our life meaning. We can actually base our lives off of this kingdom and not be disappointed. This hope will not disappoint. So those are sort of the three things that I think a kingdom perspective will do for us. And uh, our time is essentially up, but let me just summarize. You know, I think when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for the longing of a future coming eternal kingdom that I believe come in two phases, in a millennial kingdom where God's promises are, covenant promises are fulfilled and then in, a glorif- and then in an eternal state. And I think this longing, if properly cultivated and properly placed by actually by praying this Lord's Prayer, this longing will affect our lives in very tangible ways today. It'll cause us to be more evangelistic. It'll cause us to, to live holier lives in light of a reality of a kingdom, and it'll give us joy and hope in the future. So that's it. You guys have any questions? <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you um, yourself personally um, on your way to work and like with the job? How do you yourself cultivate like how to pray your time? Like how do you do that? <laughs> well, um, to be honest, you know. Studying this, uh, this week and, and the last week has caused me to, be, to have a, a much richer understanding of what this means than, than I once did. Um, as I said, I, I, I used to interpret this as a sort of a spiritual type thing where it's like, well, your kingdom kind of comes spiritually and, and God's kingdom kind of grows spiritually and the, the church kind of grows spiritually. And sort of my perspective has sort of changed in the last week. So I don't know if I can answer your question, um, um, you know, honestly that way. Um, but I now think moving forward, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray that, um, first of all, I'm going to set all of my desires on the side. I'm going to pray down those desires and say, you know, God, I know that in my heart there is a longing for money, right? There is a longing. I see that. There is a longing for, um, for status, right? Um, there is a longing for, for that next job promotion. There, there are these longings that that if I'm living according to these longings, then I'm missing the whole point of life. I'm missing the entire point of God's plan in Scripture. I'm missing the theme of the Bible, which I think is a kingdom, right? And, and so I pray those things down. And I say, you know, forgive me for these and, and put those away because my joy is complete in your purposes being fulfilled, your kingdom coming to earth. In fact, that's what we're really citizens of, right? That kingdom. And, and, you know, I'm just a sojourner, just a pilgrim. Use me here in whatever capacity you'd like to have me here, you know? Is that 
requires my humiliation, then so be it, right? But looking forward to that kingdom, that's why I can bear those, those trials and those burdens. So that's thing, that's, I think that's the best way to answer, um, even though I haven't actually started doing that. So. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, um, I don't know if I really did this justice, um, but Lord, I, I just uh, thank you for your word. I thank you for the richness uh, that your word has, even in these little three words, your kingdom come. Um, uh, thank you for giving me an understanding that perhaps I didn't have before. Thank you, Lord, for, your, uh, for, your, for the eternal reality of your kingdom. That, um, Lord, thank you for the, for the richness of, of what the word kingdom means in scripture and, and how it's present here, but it's also a future reality that we can look forward to. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that when we pray, we would remember to put your kingdom first, that the focus and objective of our prayers would always be on your purposes being fulfilled first. Um, and Lord, it's not, of course, illegitimate to pray for ourselves and our needs after that, but, but Lord, have our, have our hearts and our minds always fixed on your kingdom. So Lord, give us a, a deeper understanding of this as a church, as we, um, as we seek to understand the Lord's Prayer, even in the coming weeks. Um, I, I pray, Lord, that uh, these Sunday school lessons will uh, cause us to desire prayer, to long for prayer, even to thirst for prayer, um, and help us to understand how to pray that in this pattern. So, Lord, we thank you, and we look forward to the day where uh, we're with you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>